We live in a culture that has had a very bad case for 50 years of last day's madness. In the 1970s, my youth group studied as if it were an academic text, Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. In the 1980s, I woke up to a full-page ad in the Daily Oklahoman announcing that Jesus was coming very soon, and the evidence of that would be that President Reagan would be killed in a Russian invasion. Rapture fever heated up even hotter in 1987 when Edgar Wisenant published his bestseller entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. When his intricate system of predicting the last days failed, Wisenant shame unembarrassedly published a sequel entitled Rapture Report 1989. Of course, all such prognosticators ignore the clear statement of Jesus in Matthew 24 when he said, Of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Today, as we continue on our series on the parables of Christ, we'll address the second coming of Christ. But we'll do so in a very different way than these false prophets I mentioned did who got it wrong and are always trying to sell you something. Our parable is very familiar. In fact, if you were reading a moment ago in Luke 19 as we had the reading of the word, if you thought, is is Carl reading that text right? This parable is very familiar to the more familiar parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. But this parable makes a different case than that parable does. And what makes this parable so compelling is that your name is in this parable. This is one of those astoundingly comprehensive illustrations that our Lord uses that embraces everyone. You are in this parable. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit now as we prepare to open this difficult word. Our Father, we plead with you to pour out your Holy Spirit to come now and instruct us, convict us, press this word deep into our souls. We ask that the evil one might not snatch away the good seed from our hearts, keep us from distraction or drowsiness or rebellion to the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have your copy of God's word open to Luke 19 because we'll be looking in some depth and detail at this parable. The rationale for the parable is given to us in Luke 19, verse 11. You'll notice that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover and the cross. He's passing through Jericho, less than 20 miles from Jerusalem. His disciples are beginning to get the sense that something momentous is about to take place. And so eschatology fever is spreading among the people. The talk among the inner circle is that Jesus will enter the holy city, claim his kingly power, and begin to reign. And Jesus knows that when people begin to be obsessed over date setting setting and the, the idea of an imminent fulfillment of prophecy, they tend to neglect their immediate tasks and callings. And Jesus' parable is intended to dispel the idea that the consummation would occur immediately. It's also intended to tell his followers what to do and what not to do while they're waiting for the second advent and the consummation of the kingdom. Christ's parable here will speak of the following things. Look carefully. 
They'll speak carefully of his incarnation, his investment in his followers, his rejection by his enemies, his crowning as king as his death and resurrection and ascension exalt him, and his return to judge the world. We've seen end times mania through the the ministry of Christ as early as John chapter 6. Remember these words when we read, when they had seen these signs that Jesus did, all said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus perceived they were trying to come and take him by force to make him king. And so he departed to the mountain by himself alone. This last day's frenzy kept on through the day of Christ's ascension, even after his resurrection, And as he was preparing to ascend, when his disciples said in Acts chapter 1, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, I would add with phenomenal patience, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Now this parable is going to correct several erroneous assumptions among them. If you came here holding one of these three assumptions today, I hope that the Spirit corrects you. The first one, the first erroneous assumption, obviously, now after 1990 years, is Jesus corrects the assumption that the kingdom would appear in its final consummated form soon. In contradiction to this idea, we are told that this ruler would take a long journey away And there would be a consequent delay before his return. There's a second erroneous opinion that this parable will address. And that is that everyone would joyfully submit to the reign of Christ. No, this parable teaches about the bitter but unsuccessful enmity against Jesus. And there's a third erroneous opinion held that this parable corrects. And that is that the subjects of the kingdom, once having acknowledged Christ as king, would enter into a life of blissful inactivity. No, Jesus talks about the mark of the true servant of the kingdom is, upon acknowledging Christ as king, they enter into long, diligent, and patient labor on his behalf. And so look at the setup for the parable in verse 12 and 13. We read, A certain nobleman went into a far country, to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. So you have, first of all, the nobleman leaving. Now, just to help you connect all the dots very simply, this picture of the nobleman leaving is the picture of Christ in the parable. He is soon, in fact, just a few days after the giving of this parable, to go on a long journey his death, and then ascension back to heaven. What is that long journey that Christ will embark upon? Well, it's that journey where he will ascend into heaven after his death and resurrection. And thereupon the Father will bestow upon him honor and royalty. We are told of this in Ephesians 1, of his mighty power, which was worked in Christ when the Father raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, putting all things under his feet and giving him to be head over all things. But notice as well in verse 12 and 13 in the setup, you have the nobleman distributing gifts, 
Now here's where your name begins to be written. Look carefully in verse 13. The nobleman gives ten servants, ten minas, one each. A mina was a monetary treasure. It was about three months' salary. And so these servants of Christ had a free hand. They could invest. They can use. They just know they have to give an account when the nobleman returns. Obviously, what is in view here are spiritual gifts, supernaturally given abilities for service and ministry. This morning in the Intro to Woodruff Road class, I'll be teaching in great detail about this on spiritual gifts. And if you have confusion about this, we will be talking in some detail about it. But this comports well with the rest of Scripture when we are told that Christ has given spiritual gifts to each one. We're told, for example, in 1 Peter 4, each one, that's you, has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Just as each one of the servants in the parable has been given gifts, you have been given spiritual abilities. You dare not sit on them. We'll talk more in the Sunday school class about what that means. And then notice what Christ the nobleman commands his servants in verse 13 to do. Do business till I come. These are imperatives. They're orders. The nobleman makes it clear that he expects them to put this investment to work and make a profit by the time he got back. Notice how long they are to keep seeking a profit for their master. Look at those Powerful words in verse 13. Do business till I come. In other words, till the second coming of Christ, we're to be busy as stewards of Christ using his gifts. The nobleman's prolonged absence is the point of the parable. He doesn't tell them how long he'll be gone. He doesn't tell them he'll return in 1988 or 2022 or any other date that you want to guess. You'd be wrong just to be about kingdom business until he returns. And so he allows for no retirement from his business. I will tell you one of the saddest, most troubling things I've seen as a pastor over the last 35 years is those who go into spiritual retirement. Those when they'll be approached by their pastor, their elders to serve in some way in the church to use their spiritual gifts. I used to do that, Carl. I'm spiritually retired. Jesus, as the nobleman, as the king and ruler of his church, does not allow for such a thing. In fact, it is blatant disobedience to his mandate of the highest sort. Well, look at the accounting that takes place. Look at verses 15 through 25. One day we're told that the nobleman will return. He'll then wear a crown. He'll have the full authority of his royal kingdom. And on that day, he will demand of each of his servants to come and give an accounting. Now, this is where your name begins to be written in 16-point type. This is you who must and will give an accounting for what you've done with the gifts the nobleman has given you. And notice in verses 15 through 19, the nobleman commends his faithful servants. The master comes and inquires if these servants were faithful and productive while he was gone. And the faithful servant is is delighted to tell his master that he obeyed him. Remember that mandate given in verse 13, do business till I come? 
The faithful servant is delighted to say that he obeyed him and was busy about kingdom business. Now look carefully. The first servant does not take any credit. He doesn't put the spotlight on himself. He says, Master, your mina, your spiritual gift, has earned ten minas. The first servant refuses to take any glory. He doesn't say, by my skill and cleverness, I've gained ten minas. Notice, the noble man doesn't say, you were diligent in your labors for me, so go take a rest. Look carefully at the text. Look at how the noble man congratulates the first servant. What does he reward him with? The reward for faithful service, diligent labors, is more work. The diligent servants were made rulers, and ruling is work of various cities. And this is Jesus telling us this truth parabolically, but Paul tells us this truth didactically in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, if we endure, in other words, if we're faithful, we shall reign with him. We see this as well in Revelation chapter 5 when we see the, the saints in heaven singing a new song and listen to what they sing. You've redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you've made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. The parable is also an illustration of 1 Corinthians 3 that says each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. But then notice what the nobleman does with unfaithful servants. Look carefully at verse 20 through 25. The third servant who'd received the same as the first two was completely inactive. I may be talking to you right now. This may be your name right here. He did nothing with the master's gifts. And he gives the lamest of all excuses. Jesus tells him what he could have done in verse 23. And this man shows himself to be an unregenerate man. How? He's fundamentally disobedient to his master's command. He only sees the master as a harsh taskmaster who never gives but only takes. The true believer sees that the master's burden is light and his yoke is easy. But Jesus calls him, look carefully at verse 22. He calls him a wicked servant instead of good and faithful. Now there are 10 lessons from this parable I want you to draw very briefly 10 lessons. First of all, we're living today in the period between verses 14 and 15. Notice what we see in verse 14. We see Christ the King giving his orders to all his servants. And then in verse 15, we see his return. We're living right in between verse 14 and 15 when our master is absent, but he will return according to his promise. We've been given gospel labor to do for him and we must be faithful until he returns. A second lesson we're to be taught. This parable tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ. When he ascended out of this world, he entered heaven as the conquering hero. He was crowned by the Father and seated at his right hand. There he's doing the work of a high priest for his people, interceding for them. But he'll not sit there always. He'll return to put every enemy under his feet and to judge every man. It's good to focus on Christ's finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension. His current work 
his intercession. But we all also must keep in mind his coming work, his return as judge. A third lesson we should learn from this parable. The physical absence of Christ as king is a test. It's a test for you and I, his servants, to see what we will do in his absence. He that is faithful only in the visible presence of his master is not trustworthy. A fourth lesson this parable teaches us. The Christian understands very well that the absence of the king now is a time of preparation for future service. His service now is just a preparation for larger platforms of service. A fifth lesson. In Christ's kingdom, one of the leading characteristics is service now. There's some here under the sound of my voice this morning who have never understood this. Who have never understood that this is to be the mark of Christ's kingdom in our midst and you his servant. Service now. And so I would ask you now. And I'll ask you again in a moment. Where? How? When? Who are you serving right now using the spiritual gifts that Christ the King has given you? A sixth lesson this parable teaches. History does have an end, and a definite one at that. It will not end because of global warming or nuclear destruction, but it will return. It will end at the return of the king. A seventh lesson. Repeatedly through the New Testament, we are told that at the judgment seat of Christ, we must all appear. Isn't this how Jesus ends the book of Revelation in Revelation 22 when he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. There is a day rapidly approaching when the Lord Jesus will judge you and I. This bedrock truth should be driving you to be found faithful on that day. An eighth lesson this parable teaches. This parable illustrates the lunacy, the folly of expecting good from the future if the present is neglected. A ninth lesson. We don't begin with big things, but we are to begin with little things as we see the Lord entrusting small things to his servants. We begin with little things, and if we are faithful, God will give us bigger things. Don't complain right now if you have a very small, compact sphere for ministry. Maybe your ministry is faithfully teaching those children who God has in your, the first church in your home. Be patient with obscure obedience, believing that a wider ministry will come, even if that is only at the second advent of Jesus. A tenth lesson. This parable teaches us the certain reward of all Christians. Each shall receive a reward proportional to his diligence. The people of God receive little, if any, recognition in this time. I've thought of this often in the last few years as some of God's choicest servants were taken away from this body. The world paid no notice. When they were taken, no statues were erected. No headlines in the newspaper. To use the wording of the story of Lazarus and the rich man, their good things were not in this world. 
Their gain didn't consist in earthly, earthly rewards, but in peace, enjoying the Holy Spirit. But they shall receive an abundant reward one day. They shall receive wages far exceeding anything they've done for Christ. They'll find to their amazement that for everything they've done for the Master, Jesus will reward them a hundredfold. Now look at the statement of principle in verse 26. Jesus states a profound kingdom principle. I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is the principal lesson of the parable in verse 26. To understand this, we must see the lead up to it. In verse 24, the nobleman, Christ the king, takes the wicked servants one mina and he gives it to the ten mina man. Now look at verse 25. If you know anything about literature, this is what's known as the Greek chorus in verse 25. Look what the Greek chorus says. Maybe you have some members of the Greek chorus who are under three foot high who live at your home and they say things like this. In verse 25, they say to him, master, he has 10 minors. The Greek chorus complains, essentially questioning fairness, the fairness of Christ's actions as judge. And they want to put a cap on the master's blessings and equal out the blessings for everyone. Whoever makes full and faithful use of the opportunities God provides will always receive further opportunities of service for the kingdom. But whoever neglects, ignores, bypasses opportunities to serve will grow more and more spiritually impoverished. The principle was already given to us earlier in Luke's gospel in Luke 8. When we re read these words, those who respond to the light of the gospel give more light, and those who don't respond lose the light they had. Now, I want you to notice the lavishness of grace. Look at verse 24 and 26. We see God superabundantly giving more blessing to his faithful servants. God isn't stingy. He doesn't parcel out his favor with an eyedropper. When you'll remember when Jesus turned water into wine, it's gallons of extra wine. When he multiplies fish and bread, there are huge baskets left over. Remember who this person is who's being stripped of all his privileges in verse 26. We determine this is a, a picture of the unregenerate man, the one who receives opportunities, but is fundamentally disobedient to the master, and he sees Jesus as a cruel taskmaster. Such people are left with nothing at the judgment. They're sent to outer darkness. Listen to the parallel in Matthew 25. Jesus says, To everyone who has, more will be given and he'll have an abundance. But from him who doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I want you to notice a group that is spotlighted in this parable. Look at them carefully in verse 14 and 27. This is the rebellious. In verse 14, we read about them. His citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we'll not have this man to reign over us. And then again in verse 27, Jesus brings those rebellious up and says, bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, over me, over them and slay them before me. These are not happy servants of the nobleman. They're rebels. 
Haters of the one who returns as the crowned king. They even sent a delegation to him saying, We'll not submit to your reign. These are the people who would very soon be calling for the crucifixion of Jesus and saying to Pilate, We have no king but Caesar. This is the natural man, the lost man. This is every man's natural state. They come out of the womb at enmity with Christ, hating his law. Why do they refuse to submit to Jesus as king? Is it because he's a cruel master or his commands unreasonable? Is he unjust? No. His burden is light and his yoke is easy. This is why Jesus will say of such people in John 15, they hated me without a cause. You see, men naturally prefer, and yes, you'll hear this right, men naturally prefer the bondage of sin and Satan rather than submitting to the easy yoke of Jesus. And then quickly we see them after verse 14 drop out of the narrative until verse 27. But the king doesn't forget about them. Even though these rebels don't want Jesus to rule over them, they're powerless to stop his his coming back to his throne to reign. What is Jesus' last word in this parable? Look carefully at verse 27. What is the last thing he says in summary of the parable? After the king returns in all his glory and he's passing out rewards, he addresses rebels, those who hated his kingship, and he orders them executed. This may seem this morning incredibly ruthless to you, but it's the picture from the mouth of Jesus to the terrible reality of God's judgment in action. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 8 that to be carnally minded is death. Jesus is actually being incredible, incredibly merciful by giving fair warning, advance notice of what will happen to those who refuse to bow the knee to him as king. This is gracious in that it gives men plenty of time to repent and submit to his rule. Let me make a few applications to you this morning. First of all, the king will return. The king will return. Though he's delayed long, he'll come again as he's promised. We're not surprised that Jesus has delayed his second advent now 1,990 years. Didn't he prepare us for this lengthy period? But when you hear of the second advent of Christ, do you love to hear of such a day? Do you long for his second coming when all rebellion will be crushed? Do you yearn for the day when the effects of the fall will all be reversed? Do you pray the last petition of the Bible? Revelation 22. Come quickly. A second application. According to this parable, every person who's here in this room this morning is either among the faithful or the false or the foe. Which one of these are you? There are rewards for the faithful, rejection for the false, retribution for the foe. Where do you stand in that order? Another application. Jesus is king. He's been crowned. Put away any notion of of selectively having Christ as your priest and your sin bearer, but not as your ruling king to reign over you. What happens to those in this parable who reject Christ's 
rule and law and kingship. Look at verse 27. They're slaughtered and destroyed. My friend, you cannot take Jesus on your own terms. You must take him on his terms. Here are his terms. Submit to him as your only prophet, priest, and king. Final application. Jesus the king will return and demand an accounting of you for the gifts he has given you. And so I would ask you once again, where are you serving the great king and advancing his kingdom? When? How are you serving? Are you using those spiritual gifts, that deposit that the king has given you, that he expects a return upon on the last day? We had a woman who attended our congregation in Las Vegas. And I asked her one day, she was probably the most sedentary Christian I'd ever known. A complete consumer, never serving, never ministering in any way. And so I asked her, tried to do so very pastorally, and I asked her, how are you using the spiritual gifts the Lord has given you? And I was really at a loss to determine what gifts she might even have. I said, how are you using the gifts the Lord are giving you? And she said, well, Carl, the Lord has given me the spiritual gift of attendance. And I said to her, there is no such gift. So I ask you again, how? When, where are you using the gift that the king has given you for the benefit of his kingdom? For that's the question he'll ask you on the last day. One of my ministerial heroes, Charles Simeon, the godly minister of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, for 54 years, every Sunday evening for 54 years, closed his evening services by looking out over his congregation and saying, If the king returns this week, live so as to give an account to him with joy. Let's pray. Our Father, give us true and heartfelt repentance for slothfulness and kingdom labors. Give us fresh energy to be about your business. We pray in the name of our returning king, even Jesus. Amen.